Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from both academia and industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Hello, Josh. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Such a chore to have you. So I'd like to ask you first how you'd like to define yourself for the audience when you first time listen to you. How would you like to define yourself? I'm a cognitive scientist. I uh, try to understand how the mind works using uh, the tools and perspectives of artificial intelligence and computational modeling. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious about your childhood. Do you have any memories about your childhood that leads you to the question you are curious about today? Do you have any memories about that? I grew up in a remote place in uh, Eastern Germany. I was um, lonely. I grew up in the house of an artist that was full of books. And because I was bored, I read everything I could get my hands on. And in 1983, I uh, managed to convince uh, my family to buy me a Commodore 64. And I had to write all my software myself. And uh, so I learned how to code. And uh, I realized that everything that I can fully understand, I could put behind that screen. And what is it that I want to put behind that screen? Something to talk to, a mind, uh, ideally an entire world full of minds. And uh, that led me into the question, how do minds work? What kind of algorithms run on brains? And so I studied uh, philosophy and computer science and a bit of psychology and neuroscience and uh, eventually decided that the best way to make progress is to focus on the area of artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. I'm just curious to ask you one question. Do you think you being um, this upbringing to being remotely alone was beneficial to you over all experiences that leads you to to isolate yourself from what your generation was thinking about? Do you think it was contributing in that way or for style of your way of thinking? And uh, It made me who I am, for better or worse. And uh... I don't think that uh, my life trajectory is one that I would particularly recommend to anyone. I, it made me definitely into an outlier because I found that Eastern Germany is a very weird country to live in. It had a very weird a public way of thinking about things that didn't make sense. And uh, so I had to build my own perspective on reality and maintain a critical perspective on, on everything and build my own connections to the intellectual world. And this has led me to uh, bigger and bigger cities. I spent 20 years in Berlin and then uh, worked in University of Osnabrück in the Department for Cognitive Science, which was the only one of its kind in Germany. Uh, eventually, um, it led me to um, Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, and um, then uh, to San Francisco, because uh, uh, there are too few people that I can interact with in other places. Or maybe there are uh, this a critical mass, but the most interesting conversations uh, can be had in, in very few places in the world. And that's very stressful because I have to drag my family away from the grandparents and uh, in, into remote, strange lands. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, absolutely, yeah. But I'm curious in that way, uh, do you have any moment of illusion, do you think, because you try to understand things and uh, we will discuss, but do you have any moment when you're in early ages, is this illusion or you don't... Do you mean enlightenment? Yeah. Epiphanies. (laughs) Yeah. 
One thing that uh, struck me was that uh, there is nothing what it feels like to wake up from a dream or trance that you are in. If you experience yourself waking up, you are dreaming that you are waking up. And it was a very big step for me to realize that uh, we don't live in a physical world, but we live in a virtual world. This is generated by our own brain. And uh, uh, so the world that you touch, the world that you interact with, is not the physical world. There are no colors and sounds in physics. These are functions that your brain is computing to make sense of the uh, patterns that the universe is throwing at you. The only thing that we can say about the universe with some certainty is that it's a pattern generator. And then we make models on uh, different levels about how these patterns work. And uh, then most of the uh, poor epiphanies that I'm having are about the nature of these models. So the types of functions that we are computing and how they relate to each other. And it's not that my thoughts in this field are terribly original. Uh, it's more that the parties that I discover uh, to which I'm late are getting smaller and smaller. <laughs> so there are uh, uh, ideas and intellectual traditions that have been around since forever that uh, they are uh, just not uh, being discussed that much in, in the mainstream of uh, philosophy and AI. What do you mean getting smaller, smaller? What do you mean about that? Oh, it means that there are fewer and fewer people which have the same ideas. So basically, when you are engaging with uh, elementary arithmetic, you are part of an extremely large community. When you are engaging with um, machine learning and linear algebra, you are part of a much smaller community. And when you are uh, engaging with the foundations of mathematics and how to derive uh, what a model is and so on, uh, and how this relates to conscious experience, you suddenly realize that you are working at the intersection between observing the universe and reasoning about how observations work in general, how modeling works, where there are relatively few people in the world. So it's uh, it's a conversation that takes place between a few thousand people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm curious to ask you about uh, why do you think we, as a human or human brain, why do you think that we don't see the reality as this? Do you think it's maybe fitness payoff that we are designed in a certain way so that we can't perceive the reality as this? And why do you think we don't have to have this kind of see the reality as this? Would it make a difference to human in general? Will people listening to that, should I care about that? Now, we cannot know what reality is, I think, unless we are able to deduce all possible universes from first principles. As an observer that tries to make sense of the world that you're in, you only have discernible differences at your systemic interface. And then you try to f discover functions that relate these discernible differences to each other in a unified model of the universe. And this is something that uh, every information processing autonomous agent, like a cat or uh, a bird uh, or an insect is doing, just at different levels of abstraction. And so what's different between different people is the degree of abstraction, but what's also different is uh, the epistemology that we are using, that is the criteria by which we decide what's true. And uh, it, I think for most people, it's a discovery that we need to make that something is true independently from what other people think. Most people form their beliefs based on what their environment believes and try to sync up with these beliefs. And that makes sense because we coordinate with large groups and we share a sense of sacredness with them, a sense of the meaning that we relate to, the kind of system that we are part of. And the system that we are part of needs to have coherent agency in beliefs and models of reality. But uh, if you are uh, thinking uh, together with a group, your thoughts are in some sense limited to the resolution at which you can have a shared common denominator. 
And this means that uh, very subtle thoughts can often not be thought together as a group. And to be able to uh, think of, uh, about reality in subtle ways, you need to be willing to completely disengage with what other people think and build your own model until you uh, see that it makes sense intrinsically. And the best thing that you can discover is not the truth. What you can discover is the shape, the outline of a space of theories that could uh, explain the observations that you're making. So it's not one theory, it's an entire space of theories. If there are multiple possibilities, you're not free to pick one. You have to quantify your agnosticism. The logical principle that the uh, confidence that you have in the belief must equal the evidence to support it, and that includes meta-beliefs. Uh, that is uh, an important rule that uh, some people discover and most people don't. So most people form their beliefs based on, what, on the say-so of other people. And uh, this leads to conflicts between groups because most people don't live in a world of true and false but in a world of right and wrong and it looks almost the same but the right wrong world has different axiomatics it uh, depends on largely on what other people and what groups think and that changes based on rules that are not rational mm -hmm. that's very interesting i guess just give that case do you think as a human individual do you think that there's kind of conscious experiences or just maybe gut feeling or the way that you can discern and you know really yeah influenced by the group thinking or the way of the beliefs you have to have do you think this conscious comes from where is it something beyond the brain as body it's something we don't know what it is or how do you see this kind of that individual have some time is that's something if for example i just i can't understand how this kind of gut feeling that you can't discern situation so everything that sounds right to you but you still can anticipate uh, that's right or wrong or maybe I don't know how, how this actually comes from. Is it something beyond what we have already, something we don't understand? I don't know how you see that. Uh, there are a number of people and philosophers which have understood it again and again over uh, the centuries. And we, if we look for it, we find it in many uh, philosophical traditions. Uh, the core of the insight is that we don't live in physical reality. We live in a dream. In the dream, many things are possible that are not possible in physics, like conscious experience. And consciousness is virtual. We live in a virtual world. It's a simulacrum. It means that uh, the, our brain is generating observables that don't necessarily have an underlying causal structure, but that are necessary to tell a story about an agent in the world so this agent can plan its actions. We have uh, feelings for the same reason that a character in a novel has feelings, because it's being written into the story. And we have nothing but that story. That story is not made from text, of course. It's a multimedia novel that is made from all modalities, all the languages in which we uh, encode our experiences or in which the brain encodes the experiences for us. I don't think that's uh, done outside of the brain because if I squish my brain, my uh, conscious experience changes in the same way as my visual experience changes when I squish my eyeball. Uh, and when I squish other things in the universe, my conscious experience doesn't change. Right? So there are very distinct parts of uh, the world that I experience that I need to squish or that I need to change, for instance, by using medications uh, or uh, if I have an accident and bump my head uh, or if I'm sleepy. All these things affect my brain. And uh, it, so it is apparently the brain that is generating these experiences. And uh, the fact that these experiences don't appear to be physical is correct because they're not physical. Right? They, they are the dream that the brain is experiencing. And that's, uh, the person that I am is nothing that I am objectively. I'm not really a monkey. 
I am a side effect of the regulation needs of a monkey. I am a mind. I am a general system of sense making that uh, has an attentional system that can make uh, single out features and interpretations and make a protocol of them to revisit them later. So in some sense, I am what uh, I perceive to be on the other side of attention. I am that um, the result of my attentional uh, control model. And uh, the self is a story that the brain tells itself like other stories. And when I manage to dissociate from that story, I might experience myself as being one with the universe, or I can uh, see myself or everything else from different perspective, because the self is just a construct among many other pro uh, constructs in my own mind. So the entire universe that you experience is a creation by your own brain. And that's the same is true for every other person. And in this creation of this universe that uh, you experience as the physical reality, as the truth that uh, you cannot uh, under earth deny, right? This is not deniable because it's constructed outside of the self, but within your own mind. Mm, that's very interesting. But I'm just asking in that case um, for you as yourself. I don't know what maybe something changed you when, because I think it's very really hard when you have this kind of, we, yeah, construct everything based on our brain or perspective. But I'm curious when you're trying to have a different perspective, I don't know how you managed to see the reality of the truth from different perspective, not from my, because it's something challenging for human being in general that we, we need to understand things. And it's super challenging in life in general. So what are the techniques do you yourself, since you understand that thing is, um, what do you think we can do that we can have different perspective or see the reality of this? beyond what we have in our brain. Do you think is it challenging for human in general? It is challenging, but it's what we do. We make models of uh, everything that we are interacting with. And uh, when we interact with other people, we make models of their own minds and of their own mental states. And the older we get and the more attention we pay, the better we are able to read their thoughts and uh, see the world through their eyes. And uh, in some sense, you could say that uh, we might be beginning to outmodel them in the same way as we outmodeling ourselves. So. Uh, we are making models of our own psyche, of our own agency, and uh, of the way in which we construct these models as well. And uh, in a sense, we become more and more self-aware. And uh, this degree of awareness that we have also allows us to interpret others and how they construct their self and how their own psyche and agency works. I'm no longer entranced by what other people are, are saying in this sense, uh, if I do this, but I uh, have a firewall. Which means if other people have ideas, these are their ideas. They have reasons for having these ideas. I try to understand these reasons. This doesn't need to mean that these ideas are in any way true, because they might be confused about the way in which they make sense of reality. And in most people, there is a vast disconnect between the rational models that they have about the world and the intuitive models that they have about the world. And the intuitive models are perceptual models for which you don't have a rational explanation, which means you don't have an analytical, grammatical mechanism to take them apart and translate them into knowledge that you can criticize. This rational mind is a very sharp, but also very small and brittle instrument that is uh, required to fix perception, that fixes your intuitions in the darkest corners where they don't give good results. And you're mostly driven by these perceptual models that 90% of your brain is generating in ways that you don't necessarily understand. So I try to reverse engineer that, especially where I see conflicts. Mm -hmm. That's that's also important. Do you, why do you think we have this kind of difference in design the brain? Why do you think we don't have the same structure or at the same way, maybe intuitive or rational? Why do you think there's differences 
when it comes, what kind of question do you think is still hard to get it, to answer for that? Or are still wondering why is this happening? Um, at some level, uh, there are very similar uh, modes of making sense. That's because our visual cortex, for instance, works at a certain speed and certain rate and has certain number of units available. And uh, there is a certain resolution that we have on our retinas. And um, when we try to make sense of them, there are, for mathematical reasons, limited sets of features that can be discovered that we can use to construct our visual reality from. There are subtle differences in these low-level features. For instance, some people have perfect pitch when they hear, and some have relative pitch. That is, they perceive sounds based uh, relative on uh, the, a bass sound, and others uh, perceive sounds absolutely. So they use a, a global oscillator to compare the frequency of the sound to, or they use local oscillators to compare the frequency of the sound to. Both are valid ways of interpreting sound. One is uh, has higher uh, resolution than the other, but both of them are valid ways in which you can make sense of the same underlying reality. And, and in this way, we do have uh, slightly different models at the feature level. And the further up we go in the abstraction of these models, the more we have more degrees of freedom, uh, the higher we go up in, in the perceptual hierarchy and, and the hierarchy of sense making. So for instance, when we construct faces and expressions, we use different prototypes for the emotions and for the faces. And as a result, faces that might look similar to you might look dissimilar to me and vice versa. And uh, the more abstract we go, the, the less similar our concepts will become. And many of the categories that we form uh, are the result of being prompted by the environment. So when we are discussing ideas with others, we use the uh, categorical distinctions that are being used by our environment to uh, train, uh, classify us into our own brain to uh, tell things apart in a specific way. There are also different ways in which the self might be constituted, in which the self is uh, relating to the greater whole that we are part of. So we have different shapes of souls, different relationships to transcendence, different modes of sacredness. And uh, they fundamentally uh, define in which we perceive our relationship to the world and to each other. And not all people are the same in this way. But we can understand these modes. We can understand how other people operate, I think. But I guess that's cue in the way that brain well designed as a human, I think, that's how to have this kind of continual learning and also be generic and adaptable to different situations. We are designed to adapt, but it's still there's a limitation. So when you look to that deploying to machine, how we can have this machine that's kind of continual learning, generic and adaptable. And when you think about vision and understanding, you see the human brain be designed in a way you think there's a limitation and there is maybe a room that you think that could be much better than that. How do you see that limitation for our brain? And do you think that should be much better? You imagine in a certain way, I don't know, I'm just curious about that. And the way we are designed to be adaptable, do you think the machine can also have these features, this continuum to uncertain situation? Or there's limitation maybe in general when you see the human brain and the way to learn and be adapting as well? The, the paradigms that we use in AI when we build machines at the moment are very different from the way in which organisms process information. If uh, I send a, a query or a prompt to uh, an AI system like GPT-3, it, it's, uh, it spins up and then uh, within a, a few uh, tenths of, um, of a second, it gives you a response. And in this fraction of a second, uh, it is uh, spinning up into a small dream and then creates a projection of that dream into an output. 
but it's not continuously coupled to the environment. In our own mind, we have a continuous coupling with the uh, sensory data and we constantly try to predict the next frame. And everything that our brain is doing, almost everything, is uh, related to uh, creating models of what's going to happen next and uh, making it understandable, intelligible, salient. And uh, this includes our own uh, internal structure, our own agency. And uh, this, this direct coupling where you change in real time uh, the model of the environment and update your uh, ideas about the environment in real time so you can always track things even when the reality changes. This is very different from the way AI systems work at the moment. Uh, yes, uh, so the, the models of reality that we are uh, um, that organisms are making are different from the models of reality. They are not simulation models that act in real time. They're not tuned directly to track sensory experience on uh, all channels that, and at which we perceive things. And they don't lead to a unified model of the universe that we are in. Right? Every organism has a unified model of the universe. It's not disjoint domain-specific models, but it's one global model. And the meaning that we experience of anything that we uh, have in our attention is the relationship that it has to the unified model of the universe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm just asking the, about the resilience for human brain or kind of redundancy or when it comes to machine, machine as well. So do you think, uh, I don't know how this is a redundancy if there's damage happening or how do you see the brain can adapt to that? And when it comes also to the machine as well, designing for artificial intelligence, do you think that the concept of redundancy or resilience so that if there's damage happening, still can figure out or adapt to that? Yes, uh, many discussions, we uh, see this argument that it's very hard to simulate an individual neuron high, uh, with high accuracy. And then we take uh, the trillions of neurons that we have in the brain, how, uh, or um, 86 billion neurons uh, in the neocortex uh, and uh, the uh, cranium, how uh, many computers would it need to, uh, to simulate all these neurons? But uh, these neurons are highly indeterministic. And it's an interesting question to ask yourself, how many uh, neurons or how many brains would you need uh, to run Windows or Mac OS uh, without crashing, right? Because the uh, degree of determinism that you get out of these neurons is very low. And so everything in the brain is constructed based on a best effort principle. Every unit cannot rely on the other units being completely deterministic, but being better than chance. Every part is doing as well as it can, and every part is designed in such a way, or is designing itself in such a way, that it can deal with the fact that the environment is unreliable. And uh, another thing is that the brain is organized in such a way that the uh, individual units, the neurons in them, don't have to learn very much. They mostly converge. So they are finding themselves in an environment where they are prompted uh, by their surrounding uh, tissue uh, with signals uh, that they have to learn a certain function. If they learn that function, this activation function that tells the individual neuron when to fire, they are able to do this job as well as any other neuron. So if an individual neuron dies, it can be replaced by a different neuron that will learn the same function in this environment. It's imagine that you are living in a, or working in a very big corporation and the corporation has get pro good processes for everything. You are still required to do your job well, but uh, you may not have to understand uh, the organization its entirety. Uh, you just have to understand your local environment and in this local environment you have to converge. And uh, if you uh, get ill or if you drop out of the company, you can be replaced by somebody else who is learning that same function. 
right? And this is the nature of organizations that uh, the individual is to some degree replaceable because uh, it is able to, uh, the differences between the individuals in the same way as their differences between the individual neurons. But the specific role that is being fulfilled is defined relative to uh, the structure that you're part of, not relative to yourself. And this makes the individual neuron replaceable and even uh, brain regions replaceable because you can just, uh, uh, if you have a brain lesion, uh, put in new neurons in this region and they can try to reconstruct the function that had been uh, done by this group of neurons uh, before this new group came in. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. If there's any scenario like, um, I don't know, I'm curious, deconverging, it doesn't, it doesn't go to what we see exactly. Is it any situation, because if it has to be converging to a certain learning behavior, is there any scenario like decentralized that just doesn't have to, I don't know. Oh, it happens a lot. Right? Most of the things that psychologists deal with are either uh, problems in brain chemistry uh, or um, in the uh, brain development that cannot really be overcome, like schizophrenia, or there are self-modeling defects where uh, you are uh, not converging to the global optimum uh, of models, but you are uh, converging to a local optimum. And in this local optimum, you are committed to seeing the world in a particular way, and you don't fail because the world is against you, but you fail because your models of the world are not accurate, and you try to make the world conform to your models. And uh, so what the psychologist has to help you with is to adapt by changing your models of who you are and how you relate to reality. And that's very hard because the self that you are uh, using as your uh, giver of perspective is, is ruling that universe and it doesn't want to give up, it doesn't want to die, it doesn't want to replace, be replaced by something else. Because if that could happen, it would have already happened. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's very interesting. Uh, maybe a question here. Why do you think we don't understand ourselves? Maybe I don't know if that's really a question that if we have our brain as a machine and our bodies and still we don't understand ourselves very well. Do you think this is something question is important for you when you design that model or that? Do you think why human don't understand themselves? I think that's something also hard for us as a human. Sometimes it's been many years and we don't understand how actually we, we work or how we behave or I don't know if that's something interesting for you. Or not. It is very much, uh, but it's an ongoing process. When you are an infant, uh, the uh, pleasure and pain fill your entire perception, right? The world is either full of pain or full of pleasure. There is no anticipation of the change. You can see that it's absolute when you look at this, a small baby. And at some point, the baby learns that pleasure and pain alternate and that the pain will pass and the pleasure will come again. And uh, the baby can be content and can wait even if something hurts a little bit. Right? And uh, at some point it realizes that pleasure and pain are attached to objects and that they relate to these objects and certain objects are to be sought out and others are to be avoided. And then later we realize that pleasure and pain are aspects of our reaction to objects. They're not at the objects themselves, but uh, we can choose to some degree how we react and we can create situations that will contain pleasure and pain for us and we can modify the interpretation of these situations in our own mind. So for instance, at some point I saw my a three-year-old daughter uh, sitting in her corner and alternately uh, crying out in terror and in pleasure and in delight. And I was asking her what she was doing and she was uh, imagining the best movies from her, uh, scenes from her favorite movies and the most horrible things that she could imagine in alter, uh, alternation to uh, increase this maximum of uh, the delta of the experience. And it was a way in which she was starting to understand how her own experience worked. Right? It was a series of experiments that she conducted on her own mind to learn something about how she operates. 
And uh, at some uh, point, we realize how we construct ourselves, and uh, this uh, that this self is a representation, and this uh, is typically called uh, enlightenment. That uh, this notion that you realize that everything is representational, and you realize this at an operational level, which means you can disengage from uh, the the reflexive interpretation of reality from these reflexive instincts which tell you which is good or bad and you realize that uh, your um, aesthetic reactions to the world and your pl pleasure and displeasure is is only a representation inside of the mind that can be changed and uh, the deeper you go into this the more you understand yourself only it's nothing that you can expect to master as a child or as an adolescent it's a process that typically takes many decades of observation and learning And so I, I suspect that for the first 400 years, we are still children. Yeah, <laughs> that's very important. But do you think with that, do you, think, do you believe that we live in simulation? Because for example, Don Hoffman and Matt Bostrom, they, they have different view about that. But for you, do you think based on that as a human and the way we already maybe have limitation based on the fitness as we or environment that we design for, do you think we live in simulation in, in a game or I don't know how to see that way? So, What is the difference between a simulation and a reality? I think the core difference is that the simulation shows a causal structure that pretends to be a causal structure, but is uh, built on something else. For instance, a computer game gives you a notion of space and uh, that is not uh, emerging from some elementary causal physics, but that is emerging from an abstract language that only pretends to be a space. Right? It's, uh, it's a simulation of movement in space. And it's a good enough simulation, so it fools your brain and you can interact with it uh, uh, in a causal way that is similar to the causal way in which you interact with the world when you move about, uh, not in the VR, but uh, in the physical world, right? The uh, difference uh, also is that the simulation has symbolic interactions. There are interactions which are in their nature not mechanical. You can, in Minecraft, call up a shell and uh, type in time set day and the sun will rise. And Uh, as far as I know, this is not possible in the world that we are in. There doesn't seem to be a backdoor. There don't seem to be symbolic, magical interactions. The magical inter uh, rituals that we can perform are mostly affecting the psyche in the social world. The way in which we, in very subtle ways, interact with ourselves and with other people. So I suspect that, yes, we are living in a simulation, but it's a simulation generated by your own cortex. In this sense, we are living in a simulation. But the world that uh, the uh, primate is embedded in this uh, physical universe seems to be entirely mechanical to me, that it doesn't seem to be the result of some kind of conspiracy uh, that, or some kind of simulation that runs in a computer in the next level universe. But I mean, it's tempting to, uh, to think that if you are a simulation in your own brain and all the other people that you meet are simulations in your own brain that exist to explain your sensory data, whose brain are you running on? So we are, we are living in a simulation that is generated in our own brain. Uh, and this simulation is generated to make sense of the uh, sensory data. And in this sense, we are living in a simulation. But the uh, ground truth uh, behind that doesn't seem to be a simulation. Of course, it's, uh, there is the question of um, when you are a simulation in your own brain, when the self is a simulation and the other people that you are observing in your, uh, in, around you are also created as simulations in your own brain to explain your sensory data. Whose brain are you running on? And whose brain are you actually running on? Can, do you have a guarantee that you're actually running on your own brain and are not just a simulacrum in somebody else's brain? 
And I think the answer is that we are all simulations in Elon Musk's brain. That makes total sense. <laughs> that explains why he's winning all the time, right? The world is a simulation for the benefit of Elon Musk. Elon Musk. <laughs> and I guess I ask you a quick question here about the dreams, because I, I saw your other interviews speak about that, but I'm really genuinely curious about dreaming as a human and what kind of maybe sometimes it has a little meaning, but scientifically speaking, what do you think dreaming is all about? Do you think it's messages as well as sometimes if you speak about dreaming that you have a dream and, and you have to do X, Y, Z? Not all of dream is just maybe true, but do you think that scientifically is, is true beyond religion, etc.? But is it true that we can communicate through dreams? And then when you go, that's what happens sometimes. I don't know if you believe in that or not, but I'm speaking here to science. Do you think the human or how it's happening to the brain when he's leaving and has kind of dream as a message? I don't know that. Do you think it's scientifically has a meaning or it doesn't make sense to you at all? Uh, dreams are uh, states uh, at night uh, during which we are decoupled from sensory input and the brain is performing some reorganization. And uh, I think part of the purpose of dreams is to create uh, better low energy states, to find uh, global optima in which we perceive reality. During the day, we make local changes based on what we learn, but we stay constantly online. Uh, we have to, because we cannot stop making sense of reality while we learn, right? So we can only make local changes that don't affect the rest of the representations. And at night, these changes are distributed over uh, the neocortex. So we get a globally better model in which we can integrate the experiences of the day. And another role of dreams is data augmentation, which means we create experiences based on the constraints that we have learned uh, that create new scenes. So we can recognize these new scenes from your perspectives. For instance, for, for the objects that we have seen, we create new perspectives. So we can recognize these objects from uh, angles that we haven't seen before. And I suspect that's the reason why many of us have flying dreams as a child, because the brain is creating all these perspectives. And then it uh, spins off into the idea of uh, you looking at the world top down and you must be flying, right? And uh, so it creates that experience. If you are um, talking to say Gaia, the mind of the planet, of the ecosystem on the planet in your dream. Uh, is this really Gaia that is talking to you? Well, it's your best understanding of Gaia that is talking to you. It's an interpretation of what it would be like to be a god of a biosphere. Um, and uh, you take that perspective and talk to the individual. And if you talk to God, to the spirit of your civilization, um, you are talking to the best understanding that your brain is able to generate of that entity, right? To actually learn to talk how to God, something in your brain needs to learn to think like a God and discover that agency in the world. And this agency can be discovered if enough people implement it. And uh, th that allows you to talk to it, right? And it's this confusion exists because you think you are your brain, but you're not. You are just one of the many things that your brain is comprehending. So maybe a quick question here about how the brain can make the right and dis discern the right understanding or not. Do you think what's contribute to that? Uh, it, uh, the only th criterion that you have is whether your understanding is predictive of reality. So can you explain the present observations based on the past observations? And can you integrate over your memories of the past observations? To the degree to which this is coherent, this is the degree to which you can decide that you have a good model. And I don't think that you have better criteria. And when it comes to Elon Musk and your link, do you think when it kind of 
integrating new experiences, how does memory that you have to, for example, learn how to, as we see it on time that you ride a plane or something, how does kind of the memory of learning experience can be induced at once time? As I'm just maybe a naive question, but when you try to learn something, it takes a lot of time. It's just a process of repetition sometimes, but how it happened all at once time? Can you explain more about that? Uh, when we understand time, we have a subjective sense of time that is given by uh, the connection to global clocks in the brain and to the density of events that we store in a given moment. So for instance, when we have, say, a bicycle accident and uh, we fall off the bicycle, we might remember the scene uh, taking place in uh, uh, highly resolved time. So time slows down. And that's because uh, this event is uh, very important for you. It's traumatic. It's possibly life-threatening. So the brain stores it with an extremely high resolution. To uh, All the details are being stored. And because you store more bits per unit of time, you experience that time being longer, just because there are more events happening in this, uh, and more features connected to these events. And uh, this is one way in which we perceive time. Sometimes time seems to fly fast, sometimes it goes slow. But there are absolute clocks in our brain, so I can tell myself I want to wake up in this and this time in the evening, and if I'm not jet-lagged or sleep-deprived, it usually works. So I will wake up at a certain time. And uh, it works uh, relatively well within a couple minutes accuracy or maybe even better sometimes. So I uh, can wake up briefly before the alarm clock goes on. And this uh, means that there is an absolute clock running in my brain as well that is uh, in tr training itself with calibrated mechanisms that uh, have some degree of reliability in predicting when an event is over. Or when you are uh, listening to music, you know how long the different passages of the music are supposed to be. So maybe you can go for the audience question because we have a few questions. The first question from Jakub, he say that, how does possibility of existence fit in with your definition of existence as implementation? Why not define existence as what is possible to be implemented? I think that existence is what's actually implemented. So I would say that existence is, uh, to exist means to be implemented. And of course, that means that there has to be something that implements it, there is some kind of substrate. And this leads us to the question of uh, the ultimate substrate of reality. Right? We don't know what that is. Maybe it's mathematics. Maybe we exist in uh, some kind of mathematical construct. And existence in this sense is the default. Everything that can be implemented uh, is implemented. And uh, we are finding ourselves in a corner of that. But I don't know how to resolve that question. I don't have a good model of uh, why there is something rather than nothing. Yeah, and he also said that you briefly said on Twitter that to understand consciousness, think about what is what is functionally uh, indistinguishable from and consciousness as a, as a principle. Those are really powerful uh, statements, as you said, and I was wondering if you could elaborate more on them and perhaps explain the definition of your words as agency. And thank you for that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think that agency becomes discoverable when you realize that there is a system that acts on the environment based on some kind of motivation. And it's, that's not hard to implement. It's very easy to build a robot that in some sense wants to play soccer, uh, that, that wants to get the ball into a goal. You can have a cybernetic system that has feedback loops that drive a certain behavior. 
And our own mind is driven by a number of these cybernetic feedback loops, I think. So we have a few hundred physiological drives that make us seek out certain food sources and physical safety and uh, rest after exertion and so on. And then we have um, a dozen social drives that uh, coordinate our interaction with others and a handful of cognitive drives that uh, form us, uh, uh, push us to learn new skills and to explore and uh, to seek out aesthetics, which means better representations. And uh, we have to maintain a dynamic homeostasis between these drives. So we uh, execute behaviors to satisfy all these regions of this uh, space of needs that we need to fulfill. And uh, we create a story about that. We create models about this. So in order to control an environment, you need to make a model of that environment that is somewhat isomorphic to it. It needs to have the same dynamics as the domain that you want to control. And your, your own agency is an important part of what you need to control. So at some point you will discover your own agency. You will discover that there is a system that performs things based on your own models, on the thing that is generated, right? That, and your, on your own contents. And this is what you discover as yourself. This does not necessarily mean that you are conscious at this point. It just means that there is a self model now of an agent. And uh, consciousness, I think, is, is not an essence. Consciousness is functionally indistinguishable from a system that can single out features um, and integrate these features into an index, uh, index memory so it can retrieve them later. And uh, that is also representing the way in which it attends to it. The mode, for instance, is the feature that I'm attending to a sensory feature or an integration of a sensory feature, or is it counterfactual? Is it an idea that I just test right now? So there are different ways in which you can uh, hold a uh, single out a feature and modify it. And this um, uh, type of attention that we are uh, performing is part of our attention. And the third one is reflexive attention. The way that our brain is uh, organized, all the agencies that exist there must be self-organizing and must be verifying what they are doing. And so the, the attentional process needs to establish that it is indeed the attentional process and not just some other process spacing out, right? And so you have uh, your uh, singling out of features interspersed with uh, perceptions of whether you are still attending and whether you are that attending thing. And that all gets integrated into a protocol that you can retrieve and act on by uh, writing new content for that protocol or by making reports about other people and uh, or to other people about what you have been attending to. So you report about your experience. You report about you being uh, parsing that story that you're generating. And uh, so it's in some sense, there is a system that is generating the story, an authoring system. And that authoring system is a mechanism. It's similar to an AI that is writing a story. And then is inside of that story, there's an attention agent that singles out features based on the parts of the story that need to be attended to and connected to to give the biggest expected uh, improvement in the future. Right? The main purpose of this conscious attention is learning. And uh, the activities of this attentional system are stored in the attentional protocol as well. And this attentional protocol is our stream of consciousness. Thank you for that. Yeah. And also we have a question. What have you changed your mind about the past and why? Well, there are many things that I've changed my mind about. I do this all the time. When I was uh, 16 years old, I knew exactly uh, what was in the best interest for the working class. And <laughs> I've changed my opinions a great deal once I understood uh, that these were all adults that uh, 
were acting not on ideological ideas that I found attractive as a teenager, but uh, based on uh, the point that they, the question of how they could bring their kids to school and uh, whether they would be safe and whether they could plan the future and interact with their friends in the way they wanted to. And that these practical things are much more important. Another thing that changed my perspective was having children. When I realized that uh, before you have children, the purpose of your existence is exploration. And uh, it is traveling the world and traveling the space of ideas is uh, invigorating and fascinating. But you are acting like a single-celled organism and a substrate of other single-celled organisms. And uh, suddenly you realize uh, when you, once you have children that you are only instrumental, that you are a temporary link in a chain that goes from the first cell to you. And uh, it's your responsibility of whether it ends here or not. And uh, that everything that you did before was just jumping up and down and looking at things. And uh, right, so you have this perspective uh, that the world is vertically organized, not horizontally, that this moment in time and society and morality and sentiments is important. No, what you realize is that societies and uh, ideas uh, come and go. But what stays are uh, families, uh, are, uh, are the lines of, uh, of our history. And uh, so we are plants growing in time, organisms growing in time. And uh, we are a state building organism. We, uh, as a species, build uh, organizational units that stretch across time. So th this has changed my perspective a great deal. That's very wise. Yeah, I agree with you. And we have a question also, um, that while phenomenon like languages, free will and consciousness uh, morality, etc., at the result of biological processes, they might ultimately uh, be outside of human understanding. What do you think is likely we find answer in the short and long-term future? Uh, there are a number of positions in philosophy of mind uh, on uh, the uh, mind-body problem, and uh, I would say that my own position could be described as a computationalist functionalism, which means there are certain classes of language that we can use to describe reality uh, and that we have to use to describe reality and that also our brain is using. And what we are describing are the functional dependencies between observables. So we describe the world as a uh, set of locations that contain information. And uh, these are three parameters in a way. Um, and these parameters are connected to each other with certain constraints, which means if a parameter has uh, this and this value, this are uh, the states that the other parameters need to be in. And these constraints are computable functions. It's a very general way of looking at models. And I can use this framework to make sense of foundational physics, but I can also use it to make sense of mental states and how we are constructed. And there's another position in philosophy of mind, which is, uh, for instance, about by uh, Colin McGinn and uh, Noam Chomsky, and it's called Mysterianism. And uh, Mysterianism basically says that something cannot be understood if it cannot be understood by Noam Chomsky. And uh, Noam Chomsky knows that he is uh, roughly the smartest individual of his generation, which I think is approximately true. So if Noam Chomsky cannot figure it out, nobody can figure it out. And uh, I think that he cannot figure it out because he is somehow standing on his own feet and uh, is not able to move. He has uh, committed himself to uh, certain ideas uh, that uh, he has difficulty to retrace and dissolve. By the way, this is quite typical. Uh, Kurt Gödel discovered 
the incompleteness theorem in mathematics and it was very disturbing to him because he discovered that uh, the thing that he experienced to be as true, the classical sense in which truth was defined in his mathematics, uh, led to contradictions in mathematics. And so he was ready to basically to discard mathematics in a way because uh, if uh, mathematics turns to be out to be impotent at describing uh, reality as he experienced it, as the way his intuitions told him that truth must work, um, it, it means that you are uh, experiencing an earthquake in, in the way in which you make sense of reality. And uh, I think the solution uh, was to revise the way in which we define truth. So we would have to uh, have to come up with a new way of understanding what is true. And then the problem disappears. And this was the switch from uh, classical mathematics to constructive mathematics or to computation. And uh, I think that Chomsky has not made that switch fully. There was also some animosity between Chomsky uh, personally and uh, the uh, people that worked in the same city as him, Cambridge, on AI. Minsky and Chomsky apparently never really got along and never synchronized their ideas. And so I wonder whether uh, Chomsky's relative neglect for uh, studying uh, language and uh, Chomsky's utter neglect for studying anything outside of language, despite them being interested primarily in the uh, notion of how minds work, are related <laughs> because they couldn't stand each other. Thank you for that. And we have also a question. Can you comment on Lisa Feldman uh, Pratt's theory? in uh, constructed emotion, the theory of uh, constructed emotion. Uh, in some sense, emotions are not natural kinds. They are perceptual gestalts. We uh, describe emotions uh, by looking at the ways in which our minds are modulated in a given situation. And so there are different ways in which we can group emotions into categories and prototypes. I think what's uh, invariant about uh, emotions is that there are valence reactions. So there are things that you experience as good or bad. And many of these valences are shared across people. So we experience similar things as good or bad at uh, some level, dependent on how we are wired. And there are differences in our wiring. For instance, uh, let's take a simple emotion like uh, bliss or uh, and joy. If we compare them, they are positively valenced reactions to a situation. We experience the release of uh, endorphins, maybe uh, joy after we have run a race, uh, maybe bliss after we have listened to poetry. And the difference between joy and bliss is that bliss has high resolution and joy doesn't have to. Joy can have very low resolution. And uh, so uh, bliss needs to have a low arousal state to maintain that uh, deep uh, resolution and joy. For instance, after the race, you might be relatively coarse and not be able to think very detailed thoughts or very deep thoughts, but you don't need to, right? So this modulation of the resolution level that you are having and uh, of the valence, that is, uh, I think, universal across people. So all people are able to experience joy and bliss, except when they're depressed people and so on. And they might experience this to different degrees and they might classify it different, but functionally it's the same. If you take an emotion like jealousy, that's a negative affect that is directed on a very particular situation. That is that you believe that you have a partner that might abandon you for somebody else. And uh, that is highly relevant to you. And if you are unable to form that uh, representation uh, or if you are unable to attach uh, relevance to it, then you will not be able to experience jealousy. Right, so jealousy is also a human universal. It exists in all cultures, I think, and it exists uh, in many people, but not in all of them. 
because uh, if you are an aromantic, if you are unable to fall in love, you typically uh, will not have that sense that there is only one person in the world that you can live with. Uh, being in love, uh, as opposed to uh, platonic love, is a courtship mode. It's one where you uh, are trying to win over another person. And in that state, you are competing with others and you can compete best if you are able to sell the other person that you are the best possible partner for them and that you don't see any alternative to you, uh, the two of you being together. And you are best at this if you believe it yourself. So we have evolved this mode of uh, getting crazy about another person. Right? It's in some sense literally getting crazy because it's irrational. It's and uh, In this mode, we are often unable to... Uh, uh, imagine that we could be happy with somebody else. So uh, the thought of losing that person is experienced as life-threatening because your life will be meaningless if you don't get that person, right? So uh, you could say that uh, jealousy is an artifact of a courtship mode. But uh, it is a human universal that uh, exists across cultures and there are different ways in which cultures relate to it and deal with it. And you can, of course, uh, find uh, methods and techniques to uh, get rid of jealousy or to subdue it. And uh, yeah, cultures which are integrating and accepting jealousy as something positive and uh, turn it into a, a source for normative rules. And there are other cultures which uh, uh, in, uh, discourage it and uh, disinhibit it and, uh, in inhibit it. And um, uh, of course, uh, there are um, some uh, groups of people where more people are able of, uh, to experience jealousy than others. So, for instance, if you are in a culture uh, in which polyamory is uh, more normal than another one, in, in a polyamorous relationship, it's much harder to experience jealousy, right? Because the individuals are, in some sense, replaceable. And uh, you might love them all individually for who they are. But uh, if, if they uh, find that they are better off being with somebody else than you, uh, then uh, and you truly love them, right? That is in their best interest. So why would you be opposed to this? So if you remove the fear of abandonment, most jealousy disappears. That's very interesting. I think that's also a huge struggle for humanity as you say, across culture. We have that. But me, I'm just asking you, why it happened in the first class? If you, you're supposed to have a, find the one, for example, and you believe that you can find anyone else how it's happening in the state of mind that we have this kind of jealousy that I don't want, I just want this person. And do you think it's kind of stupidity for us as a human because we, we feel in misery because I don't know how the brain is, is, is evolving in that state. I don't know how to say it, but how we can be uh, elevated so that we can experience jealousy or maybe we don't have this kind of energy as well or in our brain. I don't know if that question makes sense or yeah. If we build a simulation of uh, creatures that are uh, reproducing um, uh, heterosexually and that uh, need parental investment, uh, and you have uh, individuals that are uh, jealous and guarding the access to their partner and others that don't, then you will find that after a certain amount of time, uh, the uh, creatures that are jealous become dominant. That is, they outbreed those that are not because they have more offspring that is their own that they're feeding rather than other people's offspring, right? So you can uh, derive this from a simulation model. This means uh, jealousy is an artifact that is bred into us by evolution because of the conditions that we are living under. And uh, it's uh, interesting to think about all the other traits that we are having, to which degree they are results of our evolution. For instance, 
sex itself, we often connect sex, sex to fertility, but uh, uh, the idea that we are uh, procreating with somebody else or uh, just engaging in something that can lead to procreation, that's very, very dangerous, right? It should be painful because it's the economically and socially most consequential decision that you can make. It's very, very risky. So why are you doing that? So I suspect that uh, people are clearly willing to um, have uh, children without having sex, right? They are willing to have in vitro fertilization, which is painful and uh, uh, disgusting and expensive and they because they want to have actually offspring under the right circumstances. And uh, sex is more like a random offset of whom you're paying child support because you can be attracted by people that you should not be attracted to, right? So I wonder if sex is more like a, a parasite that exists uh, because um, our ancestors had that parasite too. So it's basically something that is uh, infecting our civilizations that for thousands of years have lived in environments where uh, uh, having uh, children with random strangers was not good. Or maybe it was good. Maybe uh, if this, uh, if we wouldn't have that, we would only rationally be, uh, enter relationships and have children uh, with people that we sh uh, think we should for economic and social reasons. And this is uh, creating more interdependency in society and mixing up the gene pool. Right. So, so I don't know what the answer is, why we still have sex. Right. It could be that it's an artifact of uh, the times before we had civilization. And uh, we have not bred this out uh, of our uh, civilization, or it could be um, that it does have some benefit and not necessarily a benefit for the individual, but for the groups that have that trait. And uh, so jealousy is also not necessarily something that helps the group, but it does help your genes. It doesn't help you as an individual. It makes your life just much harder if you're jealous. But, but it, it, we can uh, understand this thing that we are subject to these forces and we can learn to overcome our reflexes, for instance, by understanding the way in which our own courtship modes work and deconstructing that. That's yes, uh, very interesting. I have a question also. Can you explain in detail how bit deletion allow the for perpetual motion machine in Minecraft? So in Minecraft, there is no uh, limit to, against building a perpetual mobile. And that is because in Minecraft, there is no entropy. That is, uh, in our own world, uh, all the operations that we can uh, observe are reversible. They're not necessarily time symmetric. So it means they don't go in the same way forward in time as backward in time. But uh, every state in the world has exactly one possible preceding state. And this means the universe is not forgetting things. It's only permuting bits. And that means if you want to build local structure that is resilient against the disturbances that the universe does to it, you need to uh, have a source of order that you can use to maintain this local order. If you want to delete bits locally, you need to flush them out of your system. Otherwise, these bits that you want to delete, for instance, the fluctuations in yesterday's body temperature and so on, will uh, accumulate in some form in the information content of your system and will suffocate you. In our world, if you want to clean up something, you need to make something else dirty. In Minecraft, if you want to uh, clean up something, you can just delete it. Right? You can uh, delete some of the history of Minecraft. When you uh, remove blocks and put them somewhere else, there is no memory in Minecraft of how the blocks got from A to B. And this means that uh, in Minecraft, you can build uh, automata and machines that don't care about energy consumption. 
because there is no conservation of information. The conservation of uh, energy that we perceive in our world is in a result of the conservation of energy uh, information in our world, and there is no conservation of information in Minecraft. Interesting. Yeah. And also, a question: If there's a method to dissolve the self, there are multiple methods, uh, but. Uh, I'm not a meditation teacher, but uh, the, for some people, the self uh, dissolves by itself without them interacting with it. And uh, that's often not beneficial. I also suspect that there's a reason why you have that self, right? Uh, it exists to inform the uh, actions of the organism. If you dissolve the self, you will no longer be an agent or you will be a different agent, or you will no longer be in charge of that agent. That is, your attention is disconnected from the things that this agent are, is doing, and you will just observe that the agent is doing. You can observe and predict its decisions, but you will no longer have a sense of responsibility for them. So this might degrade your performance, even though it removes your suffering. But it, of course, it only degrades your performance with respect to certain goals, uh, like participating in society or raising children or um, uh, trying to impress people that you don't like, right? So it really depends what is the reason why you want to dissolve yourself. And you should basically uh, first accrue the necessary wisdom to decide why you want to change your own source code before you go on about changing your own source code. That said, there are certain meditation techniques in uh, which you can try to wake up in which you try to disengage yourself. So uh, you have to realize that the world that you're looking on is basically a screen in a movie theater. And uh, you identify with the cowboy on screen and you think that the next shootout is vitally important. Uh, and uh, in fact, it's just a scene. And after the scene, there's going to be a next scene. And you know how these scenes usually play out. And you can stop the things that are happening on the screen and turn on the light in the movie theater and disengage from that. And uh, it'd be nothing. And uh, just be this unmoved observer. This is the first step. Uh, try to get hold of that state. You can uh, use lucid dreaming states for that. Uh, there are certain schools of meditation that uh, teach this under uh, the, uh, the guides of um, with guides that are somewhat reliable in the sense that they are uh, in the history of a school that doesn't have bad outcomes. I, I think it's dangerous if you try to disassemble parts of yourself that are vital to your functioning. They, uh, of course, many people also report that they are using uh, psychedelic substances to get there, but they are, uh, as far as I'm aware, uh, for the most part illegal in uh, the jurisdictions that I'm living in. So I would not recommend doing this. But uh, large doses of psychedelic substances tend to temporarily in induce uh, uh, derealization and depersonalization, which means there is no longer a self and you get uh, perspectives on reality outside of the perspective of a self. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. Um, and also she asks a question, of, uh, is a self is a source of man's problem? They think that... Of course. If you uh, would not believe that you were uh, an agent that needs to take care of reality and uh, of the many tasks that you have, uh, you would not engage with it. You do this because you are wired to do so. Your uh, drives are interfacing with the self in such a way that uh, the agent becomes enslaved to the duties that the organism has for it. And if you free yourself from that, you feel, I don't have to care about any of this. right? And if you feel that you don't have to care about anything in this world, you are ready to enter Nirvana, you're done. You've played through this game. And so you will not suffer when you don't care. Absolutely. That's what we need. 
And also I have a question, uh, we, two questions left with this one. Uh, you, your model of consciousness is the most impressive and convincing I have ever heard. Um, however, the weak point seems to be the problem of qualia. Can you explain how qualia arises? So qualia are uh, the feature dimensions that uh, the, we are singling out with our attention. They are the contents of the attentional model. And uh, they get their uh, meaning by their relationship to our global model of how everything works and the state that everything is in right now, which means uh, general mental representations and the connections to them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We have a question also. How relevant are hardware specification for continually learning system? Will classical microchips always suffice? Uh, if you have enough of them. But uh, it could be that the microchips that we are currently using to uh, build uh, models of the mind are not the optimal solution for this. It's, it's probably possible to build hardware that is much more efficient at uh, representing the types of functions that our brain is representing. For instance, in everything in our own brain is um, working according to a best effort paradigm that uh, means it's resilient against uh, noise, against uh, random disturbances. And uh, our transistors need to be pretty much completely deterministic. We are able to uh, deal with a little bit of indeterminism by building error correction into our systems and our memories and so on. But we stack this error correction so much that we basically expect our computers to be 100% deterministic, which means that we can write symbolic software that runs exactly the same way on all computers. And we have a guarantee that uh, the uh, bits in the memory are basically never flipping. And if we were able to build systems that are resilient against such changes and write software that is resilient against such changes and it's self-organizing to adapt to the substrate, we could build hardware that is only using a tiny fraction of the power. We could have uh, powerful computers uh, in our wristwatch that are only driven by body heat. And uh, so we are basically not using the hardware in the best possible way with our current software paradigms. Mm -hmm. And also question here also related, even given the equivalence of all universal computer, if that, that, uh, if that, that bioengineering system and likeness of the brain is required to the most efficiently model cognition. I think that you could in principle build a computer from arbitrary cells. So if you uh, just use chemical messaging between adjacent cells and you have multiple types of messages and the cells can learn and evolve mechanisms to control the flow of these messages, then in principle, uh, this arrangement of cells, if it's stable and so on and evolves together and lives long enough, can turn into something that is effectively a brain. And that's probably is the case. So I suspect that all large uh, cellular systems act like brains, only much, much slower. Uh, the trick that the brain in animals is doing is that it's like a telegraph system, that it can send information almost instantly over very large distances. And uh, this makes it possible to move our skeletal muscles at the limit of physics, right? as fast as we can accelerate the, these muscles and pro propel these bodies. But it's also very expensive because the metabolism of this telegraph system is very expensive. And uh, that's why our brain takes up so much energy. So because we need to uh, send information over relatively large distances between a lot of cells very, very quickly. Whereas in, in plants, the dissemination of information between adjacent cells takes long and takes a longer time. So uh, the life of plants or the experience of plants of the environment will take place in very different time spans. 
And uh, in our digital computers, we can send information uh, magnitudes faster over larger distances and integrate over more uh, positions in the memory that we can in the biological brain. So the biological brain is going to use certain tricks to make the synchronization happen. For instance, uh, if you want to send uh, information over large distances in the neocortex, it might take something like a few hundred milliseconds for the information to get there. But it needs to be there at the same time, right? So how can you make sure that the uh, everything is synchronized, even though it might be off by a third of a second? And uh, the trick is that you uh, rely on periodic processes, where everything is basically in a periodic update loop. And uh, the content of this loop is only changing gradually. And uh, because the uh, content of the loop between uh, now and 300 milliseconds from now will be almost the same, you just to make need to make sure that uh, all the parts of the neocortex that have connected representations are uh, swinging at the same frequency. And uh, so they can pretend that everything else is in that well-defined state, right? And this is a very different way to propagate information that we are using it right now in our digital computers. And the algorithms that will be implemented on this are very, very different. And the representations will work in a different way. So it's uh, it's hard to wrap your mind around a general uh, paradigm that would encompass both. So in which way are the models that the brain is making of reality and the models that our digital computers are computing on CPUs equivalent? And uh, the thing is that every substrate will have an optimal way of representing the same functions. And there will be, in some sense, the same functions because we need to make sense of the same reality, even though it happens with a different entanglement and the different timescales. The last question from the audience. What is the relationship between qualitative methodological work and social science and the modeling of complex social system? Machine learning model needs a lot of data and it's not graphics and take years to write. How does meaning come into the picture? If there's a limitation here. Uh, for the current systems, uh, they are extremely limited. And for the same reason that mathematics is very limited at describing reality. That's because these formal models that we uh, develop as mathematical tools don't capture the experiential reality that we are in. They uh, can only capture toy universes. So we try to construct toy universes, little abstract worlds that are similar to our real world in some sense. We make abstractions of the financial markets. We make abstractions of macroeconomic circumstances. We make abstractions of the human psyche or metabolism. And then we interact with these abstractions and hope that they hold. And the abstractions that we build of reality are very simplistic when it comes to social reality. There is also this big issue that the social sciences have failed. They don't produce, for the most part, models of society as it is. And instead, they are being taken over by activism, which is mostly exploring how society should be and the delta between what they perceive as what existing and what is instead of how it actually works. And I think this is very dangerous because it uh, does not allow us to understand the state that we are in. Imagine you would be uh, doing this to your own psyche. You never model yourself as who you actually are and how you actually work but in an aspirational sense of who you should be. And uh, only the difference between who you are and what uh, de uh, depraved and uh, uh, unsatisfying state in which you currently are is being looked at. That would uh, make it impossible for you to understand not only the way in which you are, but also the way in which you can possibly be. You are going to have a dysfunctional regulation. 
And I think that's the reason why there are so few sociologists in government. Yeah, yeah, true. That's also an interesting point. So since we're going to end, I have a few questions. The first thing, based on that experience and the way you try to think, is there something still hard to understand for you when it comes to maybe, because you have interest in how things work for the brain and how society, that sort of So is there something for you to hard to say, or maybe counterintuitive when you, maybe when you were younger, you said that something should be, be working that that way or should be yeah but it was counter to it or surprising at least something is hard to understand i don't know what what kind of thing is still in your minds just how did how this happening or i cannot understand so uh there are many things that i don't know and uh most of them feels that i don't know the details and uh these details are usually important uh, so I, I don't really know uh, whether any uh, system that is capable of complex information processing and has agency uh, is going to uh, form a model of attention that gives rise to consciousness or whether you need to put specific things into that system. And I don't know what they are. A similar question is about language. Uh, what is necessary to uh, form linguistic abstractions? And what is the state of these linguistic abstractions? For instance, it seems that in our own individual development, most people don't remember things from early childhood. And uh, that's not because uh, we uh, don't form memories at that time. You will notice that uh, between, um, for instance, six months and one year, children form memories and they can refer to those memories. And uh, then suddenly when they are one and a half or two or three, a reorganization takes place and they will not be able to remember most of the things that happened before that reorganization. And I suspect it happens when the linguistic mind takes over and restructures the memories and the self. So the nexus of information retrieval might be a different one in the brain. And they don't fully understand how that works and if it works the same way in other people, because there are some people which can retrieve early childhood memories. Does this mean that they itself is constituted in a different way? There are also people which, for the most part, don't think linguistically. So they are not like me, focused on this um, conceptual linguistic mind and think in concepts and consult perception when they need it. But uh, some people do it the other way around. They are uh, in this intuitive perceptual mode all the time and turn on the conceptual and linguistic mind when they need it. Right? And this leads to a different organization. And I'm very curious about how that works. But these are detailed questions, right? So it's, uh, there is no big mystery that needs to be unraveled. Uh, but there are many, many practical questions that, it, uh, that are very tricky and I don't know how to resolve. Right. And what could be the most important quality you have gained so far and you think you have to maintain for your way of thinking? What is the important quality do you believe you have to have to maintain it for yourself? Yeah. Resilience. You have to be able to deal uh, with uh, what life throws at you and uh, able to maintain a healthy relationship to your friends, your loved ones and yourself. And this can be hard because uh, life is a tough battle for every one of us. And we live in a world that has in some sense lost its belief in having a future. And to construct meaning in such a world and uh, sustainable relationships to others is difficult and we have to uh, deal with this difficulty. We have to uh, understand the conditions under which we exist and how to develop integrity under these conditions. And then from this stance, from this integrity, build our relationships to the environment and make them sustainable. And that is ultimately the most important thing, that you have uh, interesting scientific ideas is for the most part not very important. 
being a scientist in some sense is uh, we, we present this as a lifestyle archetype because scientists are people that uh, tend to pay their bills on times and uh, make good tenants because they make sure that the rats don't eat all the books and uh, they don't kicked out while doing their studies. But by and large, a scientist is a human failure mode. It's uh, a true scientist is born when a child decides to permanently trust their reason more than their intuitions. When, the, when you trust your reason more than your emotions. That's a trauma mode, right? It means that you are uh, unable to use your instincts to negotiate your relationship to your environment. And if you are permanently in that mode, uh, you might be very useful for society in certain niche regions. But uh, for yourself, that is uh, typically a struggle and becoming aware of what motivates you as a scientist. And to be a good scientist, you have to be in that mode, right? You cannot rely on your intuition and use empathy to form your beliefs. You have to serve a true God and not a, a social right, wrong God. Right? That uh, you have to live with that tension. That's very, very, very wonderful. Do you think, lastly, maybe I, I ask those what advice with you is likely changing. If you want to like, answer that, it's okay. But I'm curious, based on the way you think, it gives you advantage how you understand people as well, or maybe dynamic flight or the meaning of why we are here or what we're doing. Do you think that gives you... I don't know what as you have yourself. Is it something maybe gives you leverage to to deal with people or understand better the nature of people? I think that it gives me advantages and disadvantages. Basically, uh, I have started as a young child to project reality on my own surface and to become aware of how I do this because it didn't sync up with the way in which people around me constructed reality in communist Eastern Germany, for instance, and later on. Uh, in consumerist uh, America or uh, in Western Germany. The uh, fictions that people create, the collective fictions in which they live, didn't make sense to me. So I had to deconstruct them and understand how they worked and how to interface with them. And that uh, is in some sense a drawback because it creates a burden on you because you always need to translate when other people think something, what does this mean to them? And uh, so when they say these words, they mean different things than the same words mean to you. These concepts that they're using are different. And uh, the benefit that this has is that I can translate my ideas. I can, uh, because I'm forced to translate them to myself and others. I feel that I'm very, very stupid ultimately. I can do only very little. And uh, this uh, ability to see the world from the perspective of a person that is too stupid and limited to interface with society and the world as it is and the social domain as it is and the beliefs of other people as they are, but has to make these translations. This is, creates a benefit because I'm able to formulate ideas clearly. So thanks so much, Joshua. I think that was very inspiring and I, you are really brilliant. I think uh, that's what's really a lot of thinking about what you said and thank you once again. Such an honor to have you on the podcast. It was a great pleasure to have you. Thank you. Likewise, it was a great pleasure to uh, participate.